Hey, we're going to talk about friendships this morning, and I'm going to share a story with you that many of you are probably familiar with, at least vaguely. You might have uh, heard the story in your history classes growing up, and it's a story about Helen Keller. Helen Adams Keller was born in the year 1880 to parents Arthur and Kate Keller. She was born a, a healthy young girl, and, uh, but around 19 months old, she became critically ill with what doctors now think was meningitis um, and it, it rendered her blind and deaf. I mean, imagine if you were like a parent, you have this child taking their first steps and, and starting to speak their first words, and all of a sudden, they are completely in the dark. They can't hear, they can't see. They struggled for the next several years to figure out how do we love, care for, and discipline our daughter. When Helen was six years old, the family was able to bring on a home health aide named Ann Sullivan, who came and lived in the home of the Kellers, and she began the incredibly difficult, excruciating process of trying to communicate with Helen and teach Helen to communicate in return. At first, it was, it was tumultuous, full of tantrums and rage and fits and doubts and fears. But over the course of time, the, the very intimate process started paying off. At first, it was sensory, and they'd pour water over her hands and spell out the word water on her hands to teach her words. And then they would put Helen's hand on Anne's face. And, and, and Helen would start to feel the vibrations of the larynx. She would start to experience the, the breath coming over the lips. And then she too could start to replicate various sounds, eventually her own first words, and then her first sentence. The, the first sentence that Helen spoke was, I am not dumb now incredible. Helen would go on to be a very powerful activist. She advocated for workers' rights and unions during the industrialization of America. She became friends with famous prominent people like Mark Twain and Thomas Edison. And she would go on to inspire countless others who have other disabilities of their own. But I love this quote. I wanted to share this with you this morning about friendship. Helen said this of her friend, Ann Sullivan. By the vitalizing power of her beautiful friendship, she has stirred and enlarged my faculties. She has held, up, held me up to the ideals of the great and the good. She has opened my eyes to find my fellow men that need help. And it is the dearest joy of her life to have me do the most that lies in my power for this. Helen Keller was a woman who changed the world, but her world was first changed by a single person. I think this picture here today of, of Helen and Anne is an incredible picture of the potential and the power of friendship. Eleven years ago, my wife Katie and I were in uh, a sister church of ours called Antioch Wheaton, and we enrolled in our church's training school. And during that time, we heard our pastor say a phrase that has stuck with me ever since. He said, I don't know about you, but I want to change the world and I want to do it with my close friends. Something about it resonated so deeply within me. And I think that as I, as I think about this statement, it's so fitting for us at All People's Church. Because we as a movement are a missional people, right? We want to change the world, but we're a relational people also. We want to do it with our friends. When it comes to building the kingdom of God, I think that it's God's strategy and his end goal for us to be friends. 
He uses friendships to change the world, but he also hopes for us in the very end that we have friendships. I think they're one and the same. I hope to prove this to you as we dive into the word of God. Did anybody bring a Bible with him today? Hold it up. A few people. All right. I've got a copy for you up here on the screen. Why don't you open up to John chapter 15. And as you do, I'm going to give you just a little preview of where we're going. I'm going to share with you a study that was conducted on how long it takes to form a friendship. Then we're going to take a look at the early church and the friendships of Jesus and the friendships of the disciples. Then I'm going to juxtapose that to the current state of friendships here in America. And ultimately, we'll hear what God is speaking to us. All right, so John 15, 12 through 17. My command is this. These are Jesus' words. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. The word friend appears in the Bible in various forms 139 times. God cares about friendship. The Bible talks about being friends of God, like Moses and Abraham. It also speaks of being friends with other people. Proverbs is chock full of sayings about friendship. Friends love at all times. There's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. I love how Job puts it. He says, my intercessor is my friend. On behalf of a man, he pleads with God as one pleads for a friend. This ache for friendship is so common to all of us because we were designed for friendships. We were made for friendships. Friendships are powerful because they have the ability to change our world. They have the ability to change our life. I don't know about you, but my friends mean the world to me. I can't imagine life without them. I think life would be so boring and so dull, so repetitive if it wasn't for my friends. And I certainly know that I would not be the person I am today if it weren't for my friends. I want to introduce you to one of my longest friendships. This is Ryan Lindstedt. Ryan and I have known each other for over 30 years. I was the best man in his wedding. Here's a picture of us on his wedding day. We first met at church when I was eight years old. We went to summer camp together and gave our lives to Jesus around the same time. And we spent summers together up at his family's cabin. And winters, we would take road trips out to Colorado to go skiing. And then in college, tragically, we were separated from each other but only for a year because I was able to convince him to move with me to join me in college. And so he moved in with me and we became roommates. Uh, We became uh, closest of friends again. Uh, We skied together, we played in a band together and we got ourselves into a number of pickles. So I'll tell you what. I'll tell you one of these stories. I just have time for one. In Montana where we were going to college, uh, outside of the town there was this canyon called Highlight Canyon. And during the winter months, it was unmaintained. So they wouldn't plow it. It was just open for recreational vehicles. 
And so in the, it, late at night one night, I get this, this, this wild-haired idea. I wanted to test out the new tires on my Jeep. And so I said, Ryan, let's go for a drive. You know, it's 11 o'clock at night. Why not, says every college student. So we get in the Jeep. We start driving up this canyon. And uh, we get up there 30 minutes, 45 minutes. We get out past cell phone reception. We're just lost in conversation, having a great time. So thrilled at how well the Jeep is doing. And, uh, and then it's time to turn around because I'm like, hey, you know, it's about one in the morning now at this point. We should probably turn around. So I pull off to the side of the road and start to make a, a turn. And all of a sudden, I sink deep down into fresh, unpacked snow. My Jeep was good and stuck. And so Ryan and I get out. We assess the situation. We realize, okay, we've got no cell phone reception. It would be several hours walk back down uh, to civilization, and there's no traffic coming up and down this road. So um, what should we do? Well, I had one small avalanche shovel from my, from my snow uh, skiing backpack. I pull it out, and we begin to shovel out the Jeep. Little by little, it starts snowing. I'm sweating. Ryan's in the back, rocking back and forth the Jeep. And finally, after several hours, we get unstuck back on the main road and start heading back down. And as I'm Reviewing this event in my heart, I asked Ryan, I said, Ryan, you've got to work in the morning, right? Yep. And I'm like, having known everything you know now about what was going to transpire tonight, would you still have gotten into the Jeep with me when I invited you to come with? And without even taking a breath, he said, in a heartbeat. I think it's such a, a great picture of friendship that no matter what pickles you get yourself into, as long as you have a friend there, it's worth it. And some of those stories end up being the best stories of our life. So thankful for friends like Ryan who have the power to change our life. But friendships are also powerful because they have the potential to change the world. You think of the best epic stories of all time. There's always a group of friends who overcome all odds to overcome evil. Think of Frodo, Sam, Pippin, and Mary. Maverick, Goose, and Iceman. Luke Skywalker, Han Solo, Leia, Chewie, and the droids. How about the Avengers, right? We love these stories because these group of friends overcome all the odds to vanquish evil. And in the Bible, we have many powerful examples of this as well. We see Moses, Aaron, Jethro, Miriam, David and Jonathan, Elijah and Elisha, Ruth and Naomi, which we've been studying from. So I want to ask the question, though, what does it take to form these life-changing, world-changing friendships? What does it take? And one of the important things I think we need to look at is the factor of time. So Jeffrey Hall, communication researcher at the University of Kansas, conducted two similar studies to figure this out. Specifically, he was asking the question, how much time does it take to form a new friendship? Paul surveyed hundreds of college students who had moved in the last six months and who were looking for new friendships. And after compiling all of his findings, he came to the following conclusions. It'll take 40 to 60 hours on average to form a casual friendship. 80 to 100 hours to become a friend and 200-plus hours to become a good friend. The friendships take time. The problem is, 
Generally speaking, after college, none of us spend this much time with anyone outside of maybe our family, right? So I put together my own professional research graph, and I want to show you what I think typically life looks like in terms of how much time we spend with friends, right? Here, as an infant, then you get into school, and you start playing with friends in your classes. Eventually, you move into adolescence, and you get your driver's license, and you have all this newfound freedom. You can go anywhere and spend summers with your friends. You're not working yet, for the most part. Then you enter college, which is the peak of all friendship-building experiences, and you are living with your friends, traveling with your friends, you're hanging out with your friends, you're going to class with your friends, you're in clubs and sports and activities. College students, soak this up. Soak this up because pretty soon after, you're going to enter into the young adult stage of life. And you're going to enter the workforce. Pretty soon, 40 to 60 hours are taken up by somebody else's time. And then pretty soon, you might feel called to start a family. And then you get married and then you spend the majority of your time with your spouse. All that time you would have been spending with your friends. And then you have kids. You're spending all of your time with your kids. And then your career starts demanding even more of you. And pretty soon, you ain't spending any time with anybody outside of your family. Does anybody feel me on that? Like, they just know that tension, that reality? Everybody over 30 just raised their hand. Wow. So is it possible, is it still possible to build life-changing and world-changing friendships? Is it still possible for you today, neck deep in diapers? For you that all of your friends have gotten married and you're not there? Is it possible for you while you're building a business? For you that just moved and left all these friends behind? I think that ultimately it's going to depend on you and what you decide. Let's, look a, let's take a look at Jesus, his life, and how he decided to spend his time. Jesus changed the world with his best friends. You have Jesus with this significant, sizable ministry, hundreds and thousands of people that he was reaching that would come to hear him speak. And then within that, he had his ministry team. He had like 72 that he had sent out, two by two. And then within that, he had his close disciples, the 12, along with women who were supporting him, traveling with him. And then even within that 12, he had his closest three. One of the things I wanted to do was just do a mathematical case study to see if we could determine how much time, estimated, how much time Peter might have spent with Jesus. Peter was one of Jesus' closest Disciples and friends. Here's a picture of them from The Chosen. I love this picture. Beautiful picture of friendship. Here's what we know about their relationship. Jesus called Peter to follow him sometime in the year 30 AD. Jesus dies and rises sometime in 33 AD. So scholars agree that that's about three and a half years total, give or take, which would be 1,277.5 days. Now, at eight hours a day conservatively, assuming that there's 16 waking hours in the average day, this would come out to be 10,220 hours that Jesus and Peter would have spent together. So, If you think of the law of 10,000 hours, this renders Jesus an expert in friendships. Jesus invested deeply in his friendships, and those friendships changed the world. 
A second case study is Paul in the early church. Paul had numerous close friends who supported him in his ministry. We read in Romans about his friends Priscilla and Aquila, who it was reported they were willing to risk their lives for him. In 2 Timothy, we read about Onesiphorus, the person who refreshed him and pursued him. In Acts, we read about Barnabas, who gave generously, believed in him, and did ministry with Paul. Paul invested in his, his life deeply in the people around him, and they in him. In a letter written from Paul and his friends, Silas and Timothy, addressed to the church of Thessalonica, these words are recorded. So we cared for you because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. The church was not this compartmentalized pastime or job for Paul. Everything he did centered around the mission of God and the people of God. And mind you, he was actually bivocational. And many of his friends were not in full-time vocational ministry. But Paul's life and his friends reflected the incarnational love of Jesus who came down and lived among and served the people. Well, if tears are proof of friendship, then Paul's farewell to the Ephesians reveals the depths of those friendships. In Acts 20, we read this. And now compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. Do you have these types of friendships in your life? The kind of friendships that if you were to leave tomorrow, would your friends be weeping over you? The kind of friendships where if you left, your friends would be weeping. You would be weeping. Jesus invested deeply in friendship, and those friendships changed the world. Paul also invested in deep friendships, and those friendships changed the world. You see, I don't think that the gospel and friendships are mutually exclusive concepts, right? I would even go as far to say that the gospel without friendship is no good news at all. I mean, think about it. God came as Jesus, in the form of Jesus, to die for us in our sins so that we could have friendship with God and friendship with his people. That's why he came. But my pastoral assessment is that many of us are lonely. Many of us have dozens of acquaintances, but few really deep friendships. Many of us have become so accustomed to being independent that we rarely actually lean on our friends or see them. Many of us rely on these large group gatherings alone to sustain relationships, but it never goes deep. Many of us have thought that we had depth of relationship only to be blindsided by our friends letting us know that they made a major life decision and hadn't even talked with us about it. 
Many of us have some good friends, but are missing the purpose-filled, missional component of friendship. My statistical homework supports this assessment. I found these statistics. 12% of the American population reported having zero close friends. 30 years ago, that number was only 3%. It's worse for men. One in five men say that they have no close friendships. 30 years ago, 75% of people reported having a best friend. Now that number is down to 59%. And this was staggering. The average person socializes with people an average of 41 minutes per day. And that is one-third of the time that they report spending watching TV or commuting. At this rate, it would take a person over 40 years to form the depth of history and friendship that Jesus had with Peter, James, or John. I think there's this facade of friendship that a lot of us have. A couple years ago, a wonderful man left our church for a period of time. And I was so sad. And after a while, I reached out to him and offered to buy him lunch. I wanted to hear, what's going on? And as we sat over lunch, he shared with me his, his deep pain and disappointment. It wasn't with the preaching or the facilities or any kind of personal preference that he had. But it was regarding his loneliness and lack of deep friendships. He said, James, I, I thought church would be a little bit more like a family and less like a club. Come in and give fist bumps and then we leave. But does anybody really know me? I think sometimes people leave the church not because they don't connect with Jesus here, but because they don't connect with people. So how deep are your friendships? Sometimes we assume that we have deep friendships but a closer look or given enough time, we realize that these are mere acquaintances. Bishop T.D. Jakes has a great message on the three types of friends we have in our lives. He says this, we have colleagues, which are people who are for what you are for. And then he says, we have comrades who are people who are against what you are against. Those are good. We all have those. But he said, confidants are for you. The confidant are those few people that come along in your life that are for you. They are with you. They are intimately intertwined in your life. They are there to make sure that you reach your destiny. If you have two or three of them in a lifetime, you are a blessed person. Without them, you'll never be who God called you to be. Jesus had many colleagues and comrades around him, but few confidants. In the end... Many people proved to be colleagues or comrades because they scattered when the mission seemed to be at risk. Their lives seemed to be at risk. They abandoned Jesus when the cost became too high. But one of the disciples, one of the 12, only one is recorded as being at the crucifixion. While so many were scattered and ran, fleeing for their lives, one was there. John. John proved in the end to be a confidant of Jesus. I want to unpack the text from John 15 today. John is the author of this text, one of the 12 disciples. What's interesting about John is when we were first introduced to him, he's referred to as a son of thunder, which could also be translated rage. And so he probably had a, a crazy temper. He was a wild fisherman of some sort. And, but by the end of, of the story, 
he's referred to as the one whom Jesus loved. And those are his own words. It's almost like he's saying, hey, everybody, I'm Jesus's best friend, just so you know. Like, I'm Jesus's closest friend. I got to the tomb first. I was there at the cross. You know, where were you? But he's so secure in his identity as Jesus's friend. It's beautiful. Jesus changed John's world, and then John went on to change the world as well. John was faithful to record the words of his friend Jesus, and this is what Jesus has to say about friendship. My command is this. This is verse 12. Love each other as I have loved you. So the first thing we learn is that Jesus-centered friendships require you to first receive love from Jesus. You see, you can't give away what you don't have. Insecurity is a killer in friendship. You are insecure and looking for somebody else to validate you. Or if, or if you are looking for somebody else to be your all in all and to, to fulfill your every longing, you're going to be so disappointed because that's who Jesus is supposed to be in your life. And then he allows friends to echo his love to you, to be a form of his love, but they're never to take that place. The second thing we learn is this. It's from verse 13. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jesus-centered friendships require sacrificial love. The reason we, we look to Jesus to teach us about friendships is because he has authority to speak in this area. Because he laid down his very life literally for his friends. He died a death that they should have died. He took their place and he took your place. And so he has authority to speak into friendship and that's why we study him when it comes to friendship. Verse 14, we read, you are my friends if you do what I command. Third thing we learn is that Jesus-centered friendships require a shared submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Here's my challenge for you. If, if a friend is not submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ, don't yoke yourself to them in a deep way. Hear me out. I have lots of friends that don't know Jesus, don't love Jesus, and I love them. But they are not my closest of close friends. Because at the end of the day, I need to know that somebody's going to point me back to Jesus. Not to their own wisdom, not to their own opinion, but to Jesus. Verse 15, we read this. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Fourth thing we learn, Jesus-centered friendships require vulnerability and disclosure of our hearts. See, Jesus risked himself on his friends even before they were proven to be trustworthy. Heck, he even knew that some of them wouldn't be trustworthy. Forming friendships requires risk. But when we look at Jesus' life, we see that it's worth it. Verse 16 says this, you did not choose me, but I chose you. So we learn that Jesus-centered friendships require intentionality. Intentionality. I, I encourage all of you to have a DTR with your close friends, a defining the relationship conversation. It's not just for romantic relationships, it's for friendships. Tell them what they mean to you. 
talk about what does it look like for us to invest in this relationship. It becomes so much more important the older you get because you have so much less just natural overlap. You've got to be intentional with your friendships. Verse 16, I appointed you so that you might go bear fruit, fruit that will last. We learn that Jesus-centered friendships are missional and will bear fruit. And verse 16 goes on to say, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give to you. Jesus-centered friendships will bear fruit because they have the favor and the power of God resting on them. Psalm 133 talks about brothers dwelling together in unity and God commanding his blessing in that place. So when you have close friendships, God's favor and blessing and his very power rests on them. Bible talks of one putting a thousand to flight, but two, ten thousand to flight. Earlier in John, in John 13, we also read this. It says this, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus-centered friendships are in it for the long haul. Jesus' friendships have a view of eternity. I love what John Tyson from Church of the City, New York says. He says, If you study true movements, and he says it in an Australian accent, and it's much cooler, you will find that people build multi-decade friendships. Build your life around relationships, not just job opportunities. You've got to find your people, and you've got to go deep and have a vision bigger than your career. And you'll be amazed at what God will do with those covenant friendships. I love that there are decade-long friendships here in our church. I think of Robert and Jimmy and Steph and Laura Seibert. I think of Jeff and your friendship with Jimmy. There's books written about these guys. It's amazing. For me, I met friends years ago at Antioch Wheaton that are still friends of mine today. Twelve years later, I have something called uh, a group chat called the God Quad. There's four of us on this, this text thread, and we live in four different states and God is doing different things in each of our lives. But to this very day, we're weekly catching up with each other, praying for each other, encouraging each other. Just this morning, they, they let me know how they're praying for me and they were cheering me on. Do you have a vision for this kind of deep friendship? Secure in Christ's love, sacrificially giving, submitted to Jesus, intentional pursuit of one another, disclosing your heart to one another, on mission together, and committed to each other for the long haul. Friendships are the strategy of God and the heart of God. The kingdom exists for friendship and is built by friendship. I love what Jenny Allen said in her book on friendship. She said, we are called to be a community of people on mission, delighting in God, delighting in each other, redeeming and reconciling the world, bringing them and inviting them into this family. This is the ultimate purpose of community. Got a couple resources I want to recommend to you. If, if you find yourself saying, I want to go deeper. I want to, I want to have deeper, more meaningful friendships. Uh, here are two resources I think would be great for you. One is Jenny Allen's book, Find Your People, Building Deep Community in a Lonely World. It's written primarily to a, a female audience, but I really enjoyed it. Took a lot of things from it. And then John Tyson has... Uh, something called the primal path. 
um, and I get a weekly email from him, and it discusses uh, topics relevant to men, raising boys, and male friendships. Uh, He's got just some great things to say on the topic of friendships. But I want to I share with you here towards the end uh, the application of very tangible, very practical things for you guys to walk away with. Here are the best ways, I think, to cultivate deep friendships. First of all, you need to pray. You need to pray and ask God to identify three to five people that you are to invest most deeply in in the season. You could do that every season, once a year, to say, who are the three who are the five? Who are the ones that are here with me that I'm going to build with? Second thing is initiate and pursue. Rather than wait for someone to pursue you, initiate with those around you. Jenny Allen says this, friends won't fall from the sky. Friends are always made. They're made. You have to make friends, right? I didn't say it. It was Jenny. Jenny. We need to erase from our vocabulary, from our conversations, the phrase, we should get together. We'd love to have you over. Instead, just schedule it, right? My friend Chris Hamilton is, is so good at this because every time we get together at the end of our hangouts, he, says, he pulls out his phone and he says, hey, when are we doing this again? And we just schedule it right there and then so we don't have to think about it. We don't have to sit for the next few weeks being like, oh, I should really call Chris. Oh, I should really set something up with Chris. We just do it right there and then. Practical life hack there for you guys. Next thing, here's another practical. Travel together. Go on a short-term mission trip. Take a vacation together. Work trips. It doesn't matter because you are always on mission. You get to experience what that's like with your close friends. Nothing will bond you more like traveling together with your close friends. The next thing, establish rituals. These are repeated experiences that bring friends together. For me, one of the things I've done over the past few years is this daddy-daughter camping trip. We've done it for four years now, and, uh, and it's so fun to see dads come together and go deeper in relationship and raise our children together. My friend John Ferreira has created monthly gatherings for men in which they adventure together and go deep. My daughter's third-grade teacher was telling us about how she loves to run, and so she and some friends run marathons all over the country. They always have one that they're looking forward to and training for next. Just find your thing and then do it consistently with your friends. Number five, show up. Show up. You'll never build friendships if you don't show up to the places where your friends are. Come to church. Come to life group. And I'm telling you, one out of every four weeks is not going to cut it. You'll never get to 200 hours with a friend if you show up once a month. Another life hack I practically suggest for you, making it a goal that you never leave church without either making or confirming at least one plan with a friend. I mean, we're all here together. This is the place where you can have those conversations. What are you doing this week? Can we get together? Where are we going to do it? When are we going to do it? Let's schedule it right here and now. The next practical, really show up, okay? It's not just enough to show up, but really show up. And what I mean by this is bring your whole self. Go deep. Prepare a good question for your friend. Get real with your friends and and choose to bring them into what you are going through. They don't have to solve it for you, but sometimes just sharing something is such a relief. 
Next point, press into conflict. No good relationship is without its conflict. But conflict, when done well, actually breeds trust in a friendship. You have a track record that, hey, we're going to get through this. And you're worth fighting for. Conflict will result in one of two things, and they're both good things. It will either, it will either result in the loss of a weak friendship or strengthen an already stronger friendship. Final practical Build the kingdom together. Overlap is essential. And so build something together. The surefire way to get to those 200 hours, if you are building a life group or a ministry or, or a nonprofit or whatever it is, build something together in the kingdom. Build something and you will find your friendships going deeper. For Katie and I, we've committed to being a part of the local church since we got married, we said, hey, as long as, as long as we're alive, we're going to be local church people because we believe that this is God's plan A for the restoration of the world unto God. And so when we moved to Wheaton 12 years ago, we plugged into the local church. We started praying, God, show us our people, show us our purpose. Show us our people, show us our purpose. And we started serving as volunteers there. We started serving the local church community and we started meeting some close friends. And during that time, we received a prophetic word in our life. Somebody prophesied over us that we were going to be a part of planting churches and being a part of church planting. But we always had this longing to do it with close friends. The idea of like planting a church on my, on my, on my own did not excite me, right? I didn't want to build something on my personality, my charisma. I wanted to do it with my close friends. And so... We prayed for those people, and at times we thought those people were there, and then they weren't. And we learned a lot over the past decade about friendships. Some friendships grew deeper, and some faded away. We committed to staying with the Lord until he, there at the church, until the Lord called us to move on. And eventually we learned about a sister church called All People's Church in San Diego, California, that was beginning a school of church planning. And Robert's message on oaks of righteousness and planting 3,000 churches stirred something so deep in me. And I said, I want to be a part of that people. And so we moved here, enrolled in church planning school, and we thought we'd be here for 18 months while we prepared and raised up a team. But then something happened. I fell in love with you guys. You guys are amazing. And we've been here now for five years. And at, at, at times, it seemed like maybe we'd be here forever. But that dream, though it was dead to us, was still alive in God's heart. And last summer, we received another prophetic word about God rekindling that dream. And so we we're saying, okay, God, but we still don't have our people. It's like, yeah, you do. They're right in front of you. So after a, a beautiful gathering, it was my favorite Christmas of all time. Last Christmas, we were, Christmas Eve, we had these various friends in our home that we've been building ministries with and serving alongside of. All of a sudden, I realized, like, Katie, I said to my wife, I think our team, our friends are right in front of us. I think we have our team. So I go back to Robert. We share this dream with Robert, and we say, hey, I think God's resurrecting this. And so after praying about it and getting the green light, 
we started initiating with various peoples. Katie and I are from uh, the Twin Cities in Minnesota, St. Paul, Minneapolis, and I've always dreamt of a move of God there. We see the need, and being away from it has been hard, but we've carried that place in our heart for a long time. But we thought, surely nobody would move from San Diego to one of the coldest places in the United States of America. (laughs) But one by one, God was speaking to them, praise God, and they might be a little bit crazy. And so this morning, I want to introduce to you for the first time the prospective members of the next All People's Church Plant, which will be launching out to St. Paul, Minnesota next summer. Hey, we've got Michaela, Charlie, Aaron, Audrey, Bernadette, Marwan, Wade, and Kelly, my wife Katie and I, and Ivan. And uh, all of us are in a process right now. So we're in church planning school, we're undergoing assessments, and then pending our approval, we will be officially commissioned at our All People's Church Conference in the spring. And so we're going to be around for a while still. Um, I'm so excited to finish out this year with the training school. I love my students. It's been such a joy to serve in the training school, uh, serving with our volunteer ministries. And uh, we are so thrilled to see what God's going to do through this supernatural, multicultural, heart for the least of these Jesus-centered movement in the Twin Cities. A couple things to know about St. Paul. Um, St. Paul is one of the two Twin Cities, along with Minneapolis. It is the capital city of Minnesota. It's home to over a dozen colleges and universities, five major league sports teams, numerous businesses, and an incredibly diverse population. But I tell you, leaving here is going to be very bittersweet. Paul's farewell to the Ephesians is a glimpse of what I think it's going to be like when I'm crying over leaving this place and the friends that we've made here. And we're going to need friends here praying for us, supporting us as much as we need friends there. And that's you guys. I want to invite you to stand with me. And I want to pray for each of you and for your friendships in your life. Katie had to run home to be with the kids, otherwise I'd invite her to be with us. But we know that God designed us for friendship and that those friendships can change the world. My prayer for you is this, that you would build deeper relationships here. Ask yourself, what would it look like if you committed to the next three years investing deeply into the relationships of this church? Jesus had a little over three years. Paul had three years. But he went deep. They went deep with their community, deep in friendship. I want to pray that God would increase your vision for longevity. What would it look like for you to be envisioned for multi-decade friendships? Would it change the way you think about where you live? Would it change the way you think about raising your children, what job opportunities to take or to pass on? And then I want to I pray that God would clarify what it is that you are called to build. Maybe a business, maybe a thriving section of our church, maybe a life group, maybe a neighborhood culture, maybe a school culture. Deeper, longer, clearer. 
God, we ask for your help in this place because so many of us have been lonely. So many of us have been disappointed by friendships. But you are a friend who is closer than a brother. And so we, we rest in your friendship, secure in you, knowing that, Lord, you're going to show us how to do this thing called friendships, God. I pray that you would put the lonely into friendships that would become like family to them. We thank you that it's your heart that people would connect with you, Jesus, and your people here at church. And Father, would you take these friendships, would you use these friendships that exist and the ones that are forming to change the world? Would you use these friendships to demonstrate the love of God, the sacrificial love of God to the world? Father, we need you. We need you to help us, bring us into a revival of friendships, Lord. Strengthen the fabric of our relationships. Strengthen our net, Lord, so that you can bring more and more people into this community, Lord. The world is starving for friendship, so teach us how to do it and teach us how to do it well, Lord. Amen. Wasn't that a powerful word? And just extend your hand with me. Let's pray for James and uh, anyone on the team. Let's put our hands on them and just pray as they prepare. Lord, we just thank you. Lord, we see that picture of them on the screen. And what I believe for all of us, for every person listening right now, is that God has friends like that for you. And Lord, that's what we're believing for for this church. And we pray as this team of friends prepares to do a kingdom endeavor that you would anoint them, fill them with your Holy Spirit, and use them powerfully. Amen. Great job, James. Hey, we've gone a little over time, so let's end with this. I love those first two points that James had. Don't just be hearers of the word only, but let's be doers. Let's ask God to give you friends. I believe that every one of us can have a picture like that of us with our kingdom friends. And then let's initiate with someone this week, deeper friendship. God bless you. Have a great week. We love you. See you Wednesday night at our prayer time. you to be able to take a next step as you walk with Jesus right where you are. So hey, go to the chat if you have a prayer request or you want to ask a question. Our live stream host is there and ready to pray for you and connect with you. There's also many more resources and info on our YouTube channel, on our website, and on social media. So engage in those places as you take a step forward with God, and we can't wait to see you soon at our next gathering. God bless you.